Okay, so has anyone noticed that it's officially December? I'm very excited because now I can listen to Christmas music and pretend I haven't been for a while. I'm very excited also this morning when I was getting dressed, I dressed both festive and professional. I felt like it fit my mood, but I'm very excited because the Christmas season is upon us. I know, it gets me really stoked because I love like twinkly lights and I love the presents and I love the jingle bells, but I also really love Advent. I do. Um, Advent is a season that was really special to my family growing up. We had the candles. We, uh, my family is Catholic, so we had the candles. We had all these things, and it was a really important time for us. But as an adult, it's been a really important time for me because I love um, taking time to focus on what we celebrate this season. So Advent is a season that we as Christians, uh, we take time to reflect on Jesus' birth and life. And what I didn't know about Advent until this week was, and probably a lot of people know this, but I didn't know that the word Advent, uh, it comes from the Latin word for coming. So it's when we celebrate the coming of Christ. Okay, at least one person didn't know. Good. <laughs> Great. Um, it, we celebrate the coming of Christ, both the way that Jesus came as a baby, but the way that Jesus will come again. So over the next four weeks at this church, we will be celebrating that the birth of Jesus brought hope, love, joy, and peace. We get to celebrate that through Jesus coming to the earth, we get access to that hope, love, joy, and peace, and also deep forgiveness. We also get to celebrate that as Christians, we are invited in along on that journey to celebrate and spread hope, love, joy, and peace. You got it. So um, I'm excited because it's a really awesome story. But one thing that I love the most about the Advent season is that it begs us to slow down. I think that this season is a really quick, fast season. Often we are trying to perfect our holiday pie while making our house look beautiful for extended family or in-laws, while we're wrapping all the presents and getting them all really quick or really, really quick on Amazon Prime. And um, the season can feel very, very fast, but I actually think that the Advent season is very slow. Um, it's a story with a lot of waiting. The Christmas story involves a lot, a lot of waiting. During the Christmas story, people had been waiting on a savior. From the time described in the last book of the Old Testament to the time Jesus was born, scholars estimate that there was 400 years in between there. That is a lot of years. I looked it up, and I'm not even sure if this math is right, but it's like 35 generations. It's a lot of generations. And all of that time, people were waiting and hoping for a Savior. But in all that waiting, I'd like to guess that some people may have given up hope. But after that 400 years of waiting, that is exactly where hope shows up. And for those still hoping, Jesus 
was what they were waiting for. That was their hope. So this morning, we're going to spend time focusing in on hope and at the same time in on waiting. And a reality that I'd like to claim is that waiting isn't super fun. We create a lot of things in our world that help us not to have to wait. For example, fast passes at Disney World. Um, I just mentioned Amazon Prime. Um, One of my favorites is the microwave. (laughs) Uh, Another one is 24-hour supermarkets, right? Like, we don't even have to wait until the morning to buy cookies. It's great. But I think in a society that really wants to hurry, that wants to make everything fast, we would have, I'm just going to speak for myself, I would have a hard time waiting 400 years for a savior. So because we know the end of the story, we know that there is hope. We know that there is victory. But I'd like to just set a scene for that hope and that victory, all right? So I'm going to paint a picture for you this morning uh, in, your, in your brain. And I'd like you to get in whatever, whatever posture you imagine best. So if it's closing your eyes, you can do that. And if it's, I mean, with, don't like get up and leave the room. But okay, so imagine a baby. Frail and small, like all babies, who was born to a Jewish family living in an oppressive regime as travelers in a foreign place. That baby was born to an unwed, young, and poor mother. And the pregnancy had almost split up his parents. That baby was born where there was no room for him. So he had to be put into a shared area with no privacy. Shortly after this baby was born, his parents had to run from a literal threat against their child's life. In their fleeing, they became refugees. They were poor and displaced. This is what we celebrate every December. This is the story of how our Savior came to the world. This is our story of hope. But does it seem like it? When I think of hope, I wouldn't necessarily paint this picture. In fact, if I didn't know the outcome, I'm not sure that the story of how Jesus came to the world would bring up many hopeful or even positive feelings inside of me. And if I was waiting on a savior, I don't think that this would have felt like a particularly hopeful moment. And I'd like to guess that maybe other people felt that way too. The Messiah had been prophesied about since before anyone alive then was even born. Even in the passage from Isaiah that we read earlier, the coming of Christ, the Messiah, was to bring righteousness, justice, and equity. But this is a baby. And I don't know if you, like, have a kid or if you know a kid, you might have noticed that babies don't seem like the most powerful creatures in the entire world. A baby sure doesn't feel like the fulfillment of a promise, the fulfillment of a prophecy, A baby doesn't feel like the hope people had been waiting years for. Yeah. (laughs) True. 
But so often, isn't this the story of the gospel? The kingdom of God is so upside down that a baby came to save us. A baby is our hope. And you're right, babies are amazing. But this baby was going to save the world. And that's the upside down kingdom of God. So in our culture, I actually think hope is pretty misunderstood. Um, like the uh, text, like the passage was saying, we hope for things under the tree, we hope for this, we hope for that. Um, and I think often we mix up hope and optimism. I think that's something that's conflated pretty often. And I don't think I can put it better than the Dutch Catholic priest Henry Nouwen put it. He says this, Optimism and hope are radically different attitudes. Optimism is the expectation that things, the weather, human relationships, the economy, the political situation, and so on, will get better. Hope is the trust that God will fulfill God's promises to us in a way that leads us to true freedom. The optimist speaks about concrete changes in the future, and the person of hope lives in the moment with the knowledge and trust that all of life is in good hands. Right? Yeah, yeah. Henry now is amazing. Hope in its core is about waiting, believing, and living towards a reality that we do not fully experience or even see as being possible. And when we understand that picture of hope, I actually think we can look at the Christmas story and see that it is full of hope. For us, Jesus coming to the world meant that he was ushering in the restoration of all things being made new. Hoping means knowing that what God promised is what will happen, even if it seems impossible, even if you're staring at a baby when you expected a warrior, or when you're a young, unwed mother who is told that they will that she will give birth to the redemption of Israel. Hope is trust and believing that what God said will happen is what will happen. And so there is so much hope that is so prominent in the Christmas story, and Mary is one example. In Luke 2, Mary was told by an angel that she would give birth to Jesus and that Jesus' reign would have no end. So she too had been waiting on a savior in hope that one would come and bring redemption and comfort. But little did she know, here was the savior coming from her own body by the hands of God. And even in Mary's story, there was so much waiting that necessitated so much hope. Even after she had been promised this thing from God that Jesus will be the redemption of Israel. She had to wait nine more months to even have the child. And then 30 more years for him to start his ministry on earth, watching him grow and understand who he is. And then after three years, he dies. And in that death, I'm sure it necessitated so much hope for Mary. Right? To have this not completely deplete your hope, Mary would have to believe that all of life is still in good hands, even with Jesus on the cross. To believe that this moment isn't the end. That what God said will happen, will happen. Mary would need to be hopeful. And I believe that she was. 
Mary is someone that we can look to who had every reason not to hope but chose to believe that what God said would happen would. But today I want to highlight a story in, the, in Luke, in the Christmas story, that we don't hear about that often. I'm very excited about this story. Um, and it is on page 500 of this Bible, or in uh, other Bibles, it's just Luke 2. So if you could, open it with me. And while you do that, I'm going to give some background. So in these days, after a baby was born, um, the mother would need to uh, go to the temple to be cleansed because childbirth was considered unclean. And it was customary for them, for parents to present a uh, firstborn son to the Lord. That was sort of a, it was written about in Leviticus. So uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are going to the temple to do exactly that, to go through purification, sort of like um, offerings to God. And so they're doing a pretty normal thing. This is what people do after they have babies. But the people that they meet there are not that normal. So let's start reading at Luke 2.25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, which can be translated uh, to mean the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up into his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So good. I know. So what's amazing about this is that Simeon had been given a promise that he will not see death before he sees the coming of Christ. And he had been waiting for that. It says that he had been waiting on the consolation of Israel. So that probably meant he was returning to the temple, a regular place, on a regular basis, and he was going around. And I wonder if everywhere he went, he was wondering, where will I meet the Messiah? Because he was actively waiting on the Messiah to come, that defined his actions. He was living in to hope. Hope fueled him towards waiting for and seeking out a reality that had not yet come to pass, but that he hoped in God would. So scholars say that he was really old, like really, really old. Some people even say, some, some scholars say that he might have even lived pat, like way past normal human lifespan. I read a thing that said 200 years. Wild. But in any case, what that means is he had waited for years, hoped for years, that he would see the coming of Jesus. 
And so that makes this moment so much more amazing. The joy is so much more amazing when he scoops the child into his arms and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. It's like he was saying this is what I was looking for. This is what I was hoping for. And I think that there's something so sweet about him, like, just needing to hold Jesus. You know, like, I have to touch him. I have to have him in my arms because this is what I have been hoping for all along. This is what God promised me coming true right now. This child is going to save us. And although he was a baby, he was small, wonderful, and fragile, Simeon knew that this was the fulfillment of the promise. So let's return to Henry Nouwen's, Henry Nouwen's idea of hope for just a second. He says, Hope is the trust that God will fulfill God's promises to us in a way that leads us to true freedom. The person of hope lives in the moment with the knowledge and trust that all of life is in good hands. So isn't that the story of Simeon? Simeon had hoped. He had trusted that God would fulfill God's promises. And it came in the form of a small child, probably an unexpected form. But nonetheless, Simeon knew that this was his hope and this is what he had been waiting for. And because he did not give up hope, even in the times when hope seemed lost, He waited and hoped long enough to see the fulfillment of what God had promised. So let's take a second and put ourselves in the story. If hope is the trust that God will fulfill God's promises to us in a way that leads us to freedom, this story helps us ask a few questions. The first is, what has God promised us? And the second is, then how do we hope? So the first, the promises of God are plentiful. I noticed today, even as we sang worship, we talked about some of the promises of God. Throughout scripture, throughout worship, God promises many things. In Isaiah 9, God promises that a child would be born and that a child would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and that that child would reign forever and ever. In Isaiah 61, God promises to proclaim good news to the poor, to bring justice, and to bring freedom to the captives. God promises us life and forgiveness. God promises that God's love will never, ever end. God promises to be our refuge, our comfort, and our guidance. And that's just scratching the surface. God promises us so many things. And maybe you even have personal promises from God, like Simeon. If you want to know more about what God promises you and promises us, I would encourage you to read scripture through that lens. You can read scripture, the Old Testament or the New Testament, asking, what is God promising? But when we hear the promises of God, we look around at our surroundings, at our world. What God has promised us is often not yet a reality. 
Jesus came to begin the redemption of making all things new, but our lives and our surroundings would tell us that that is not fully here yet. And at this point, when we hear a promise from God, we know what the promises are, but we don't see them match up with our reality. We have two choices. The first is to hear the promises of God and choose to believe them even without much uh, evidence of their fulfillment. That even though there is suffering, suffering is not the end of the story. This is a choice to hear God's words and trust God's character and start to orient ourselves toward the kingdom of God where Jesus brings healing and life and makes all things new. This is the choice to believe and live towards a reality that we don't even have evidence of existing. You know, sometimes we look around and it feels like there's not evidence of all things being made new. At the end of the day, this is what hope is. Desire to live into a reality that does not yet exist. The reality where everything is made right and new because Jesus is near. But there's a second option, too. And I actually think this option is easier, if I'm being honest. Maybe not more freeing, but definitely easier. And it's cynicism. This is the choice to let our current situations dictate our reality. It's the choice to look around us and lose hope that God is working and lose hope that what God says is going to happen actually will. And admittedly, sometimes this is the choice I choose. As much as I do honestly believe that scripture is true and real and sovereign, I would love to tell you all that I always believe that everything God says will happen will, but I'm not perfect, and sometimes I lose hope. I think sometimes when we look around, we can see a lot of hardship that causes us to think, where is God? When we look around and see people dying from starvation, we could say, where is the God that promised good news to the poor? When we see oppression of marginalized group, we could say, Where is the God that promised justice? When I see friends suffering from anxiety and depression, I start to wonder, where is the God that promised comfort? Where is the God, where is the guidance of God? When I look at my own life and things aren't going the way that I thought that they would, or the way that I planned that they would, I ask, where is the wonderful counselor? And what I have had to learn is actually what Simeon knew better than I do, is that hope has very little to do with our surrounding circumstances. Simeon went day after day to the temple. He searched for the child. So if we believe that Simeon was old, no matter how old, 200 years old, there's some justifiable thing in us that might say, that might tell Simeon it's okay to lose hope. You know, you've been waiting a long time. I think for me, I would understand if Simeon had lost hope. But he didn't. Simeon was not cynical. He chose option one, that even though it was inconceivable, even though his people had waited hundreds of years for salvation, even on every day that he didn't meet the Messiah— 
he hoped. He chose to let God dictate his life. So as people um, trying to follow Jesus, we must learn to be like Simeon. We live in what people call the now and the not yet. So what that means is there's a reality that Jesus ushered in this new thing where things are beginning to become new, and we get to be a part of that. But we can look around us and know that there's a not yet as well. Not everything is new and restored. In other words, Jesus in his birth that we celebrate in this season and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he started what is still happening. The response of cynicism would give up on the promises of God. And the response of hope moved towards the finished work, the work that's finishing, of healing, even when it feels like our efforts aren't making a difference in our families, in our cities, in our communities. Even when, our, even when we don't see that things are being restored, even when we don't know where God is, hope says continue to press in. Because what God said will happen will. And cynicism says, well, there's no hope. I might as well not try. I actually, upon reflection, I actually think it's what hope is what helps us to fight for freedom and justice and peace. Hope is what helps us to continue to believe that Jesus is good enough to follow. And I just want to mention sort of a nuance here, because I think when I hear hope, I just imagine people being like, everything is awesome. My world's great. You know, but that's not hope. I think that that might be more like optimism. And so I, and I'm also wildly optimistic, so just so everyone knows. If you see me doing that, I mean it. Um, But what I'd like to mention is that uh, hope does not mean we don't lament. So the circumstances of our world are sad and terrifying. Our hearts are broken, and a lot of us have gone through really difficult things. Hope does not mean we don't cry or mourn or lay in bed for a really long time or go and see a counselor. Hope means we lock eyes with Jesus and against all odds believe that God will fulfill God's promises to us in a way that leads us to true freedom and that all of life is in good hands. So because I love making things practical, I thought I would tell you all a story. This summer, I went on a six-week program to Tacoma, and I lived on the Tacoma hilltop, uh, which some of you may have been there or know it. It's a place very dear to my heart, and it is also a food desert. Um, The place where I lived had an average income of $26,000 per year, And uh, about two decades ago, it was a place that was known uh, for a lot of violence and um, a lot of things that um, would seem very hopeless. So I worked in a place called the Nativity House. It is a night and day shelter for people experiencing homelessness. And uh, every day, my team and I would go, and we would serve meals, and we would play chess. We would get our 
butts beat in chess <laughs> every day. And uh, we would talk to people and hang out. And while we were there for six weeks, we actually made quite a few friends. So when you enter the Nativity House, at first glance, it would seem like a very hopeless place. Many of the guests there have been homeless for years. Some have co-occurring mental health issues. Beds were scarce and the weather was hot. Many people were hungry. Almost all were very poor. And a lot of them didn't have a place to sleep at night. It would be easy to walk around the Nativity House and say, where is the coming king? Where is Jesus here? Where is the hope of our Savior? But to be honest, the people there were some of the most hopeful people I have ever met. Many believed, though their circumstances did not reflect it, that God was still keeping God's promise of making all things new. One friend I met taught me to hope against all odds. My friend had been severely injured and hospitalized pretty young, so he became homeless at a very young age. He moved around quite a bit uh, before finally settling in Tacoma and finding a bed at the Nativity House. When I arrived at the Nativity House, he had just recently found a bed. And over the, um, the weeks of being there, I got to know him, and I got to understand that he loved Jesus and understand more of his story. So when uh, my friend joined a acting troupe for people uh, that had been affected by homelessness, I got to go to one of his plays, and it was probably top ten days of my life. And um, while I was sitting there, he told his story. And I don't have permission, and I can't get permission to tell you all of his story. But what I can tell you, I realized that day, was that my friend had a hope in Jesus that far surpassed mine. All of his surroundings said he should give up. But his rally cry was something along the lines of, he said this a lot, like, never give up. Jesus is so good. I think the world would look at my friend and say, you should give up. In fact, I think a lot of people in the world had given up on my friend. But against all odds, my friend believed that what God said would happen would. That God was still good and that life was still in good hands. And I, I feel honored to have been in the presence of such hopeful people. They were not always happy. They were not always optimistic. But they were hopeful. And they taught me how to be hopeful, too. And so the, though the world begs us to be cynical, to give up, we have to resist. Giving up hope would be losing sight of Jesus, of that baby that came to save us. He is where we need to place our hope. So this Christmas season, I want us to practice being people of hope. I want us to practice hoping like my friends at the Nativity House and like Simeon. To hope and to trust that God will fulfill God's promises in a way that leads us to true freedom. That all of life is in good hands. 
So I want to name that while you're sitting here, many of us may have already lost hope. Some of us have stopped believing that our friends and family could experience Jesus. Some of us have heard a promise from God, but it's been so long that we've given up hope that it will come to pass. Some of us are experiencing pain of broken relationships that we do not think will ever get better. Some of us watch the news and feel like issues of injustice or politics in our country will never resolve. For us in those and many other situations, we need to become people who ask Jesus for his eyes for the hope for humanity. We need Jesus. We need to ask Jesus to help us hope against all odds. And that will mean frustration and countercultural and maybe even some hardship for us. And it will mean hope. So I encourage you all to create one practical way to hope in this season. Maybe you already know the place that you need Jesus to bring you more hope, but I just want to name some possibilities just to maybe, I say this to my students, like get your brain grapes working. So some ways that I have seen hope increase in my life and in others. One is to pursue knowing God's character. It is way easier to trust someone you know. So ways that you can get to know who God is, who this person you're supposed to be hoping in, you can read scripture every day about who God is and what are the characteristics of God. You could listen to sermons. You could listen to worship. There are so many ways you can find out who this God and who this Savior is. The second is to write down and remember things that help you carry hope. So I I don't know this about Simeon, but if I had a hope, if I had a promise like Simeon, I would need like markers to help me remember why I am hoping that I will see what what God has promised. So uh, some examples of that, you could be part of the Seeds of Hope campaign. You could put a little, you know, don't give up in your front yard. Um, You could collect biblical stories that remind you of hope. You could collect friends' stories that remind you of hope. Um, I just heard a story from Eliza this morning about her sweater that reminded me to hope. So you can ask her about her sweater. Um, there are so many things around us where, that God can uh, give us to help us hope on this journey of following Jesus. The third is actively choosing out of cynicism. I think that this is really hard because I actually think it's really easy to be cynical. But I think that this Christmas season, one thing you could do is create methods to decrease the cynical voices in your head and in your life and increase the voices of hope. So maybe there's somewhere that every time you leave, you know you feel hopeless. Maybe figure out how to enter that space differently. Or uh, for me, I feel pretty hopeless if I read like hours and hours of news. Maybe I should break that time up a little. (laughs) Figure out methods to decrease the cynical voices in your head and increase the voices of hope. And I'm encouraging you to do these things, not just because they're like cute little things, but because hope is really good. 
Hope ultimately brings us closer to God. And what I have learned in my 26 years of living is that close to God is where we want to be. So I'm going to pray that Jesus would bring us hope in this season. Would you pray with me? Jesus, hope is hard and sometimes can feel elusive. But God, we want to be people that believe that what you said will come to pass will. We want to believe in your promises, God. We want to know you and know your promises. And we want to be people that hope against all odds. God, in this Christmas season, in this Advent, in this coming of the baby that came to save us, God, would you bring hope into our lives? Would you create a space for hope in our hearts? And would we see the healing and restoration that comes along with believing that you are good and that what you said will happen will? Jesus, we pray all of this in your name that is holy, good, and honest. Amen.